Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Paul Axton, and in this series, I'm going to continue talking about philosophers, but uh, maybe Sigmund Freud, it's uh, unclear exactly where he falls. And in this opening section, I'm going to just describe the problem with Freud and make it clear I'm well aware that uh, he's fallen out of disfavor and all of the problems that there are uh, in connection with Freud. It's a little bit like uh, talking about Martin Heidegger, that people imagine that if you are describing his philosophy or that you find something beneficial in the philosophy, that in some way you're missing the fact that he's a Nazi. And of course, I've talked about Heidegger previously, that here may be the greatest metaphysician of the 21st century who's a despicable idiot. There's a a similar way in which Sigmund Freud is uh, certainly maybe deserving of the derision that he's gotten and attention, kind of negative attention. But after going through and making it clear that Freudianism is full of problems, and maybe even the man himself, obviously that there are problems not on the order of a Heidegger or of a kind of cosmic sort of evil, but at a smaller scale, I'm, I'm well aware of the, uh, the issues that uh, connected with Sigmund Freud, the lack of efficacy connected with the talking cure, the bogus elements in uh, Freudian thought, and even a kind of maybe an inherent dishonesty in Freud that he was fudging what he was doing. But nonetheless, after talking about this a little bit, then I'm going to turn to what he's actually doing and describe the sense in which Freud is filling in a blank spot that is very much needed, you know, whether you talk about it culturally or even theologically, that he's doing something that others have not done. And that if you take the arc of what he's doing and look at what he's doing, maybe even in the most questionable aspects of the latter half of his project, which is, uh, strangely enough, the most derided. People have taken up the former half of Freud, imagining, you know, originally that there was some sort of practice that you could institute in psychoanalysis and that you might be able to help people. And and I'm not saying that there isn't some of that, but of course a lot of that, people who are doing psychiatry or or counseling now, that uh, for the most part they've abandoned a Freudian understanding But nonetheless, I think that he's instituted to a degree than the modus that we're we're operating on. Some would say, oh, that actually he just delayed the whole project. And there may be an element of truth in that. But let's turn then and look at some of the, the issues with Freud. Freud is in Vienna, and of course he eventually is forced to leave. He almost doesn't get out of Vienna. On June 4th, he takes the Orient Express out of Vienna three months after the German army had already occupied the city. You know, he just barely gets out with his life after they arrested his daughter, Anna, and was interrogated. But his own sisters, in fact, did not make it out. He left behind four sisters, and all of them would be killed by the Nazis, probably at Auschwitz and Treblinka. And so he went to London, and he had to leave everything behind and was set up in a uh, house in London by friends, he was able to then carry on with his research and carry out a great deal of his publishing in, in London. Looking at the fact that Hitler and Stalin were the ones who were the prime enemies of psychoanalysis in Europe, and, and in fact are going to drive it to the United States primarily, and uh, of course uh, New York and London. It had been in Berlin, Budapest, Moscow, and even in Japan there was, I've talked previously about the entry of Freudian psychoanalysis into Japan. During the time that Hitler was in power, analysts began very slowly to immigrate to the United States, and uh, Freud, of course, did not like the United States. The United States is going to become a, a kind of center in a sense, and New York City is going to become a center. 
It, it is a period that many people have pointed out that you have the exposure of the unconscious in literature. It's the period in which Mary Shelley publishes Frankenstein and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are published. The interest in uh, the unconscious, and I think that it is a kind of cultural phenomenon. Whether you link it to Freud as the cause or Freud as a part of the, the general movement, there is an unfolding of the notion that people are in some way driven by desires, that they're made sick by their unconscious desires, that there is neurosis and psychosis, that there is the, the sickness that Freud is going to encounter, and whether he exaggerated this or painted this in a different light than it actually existed. And of course, as we're saying this, we all recognize that a great deal of psychiatry today has recognized that a good number of these diseases are uh, physiological. And so rather than talk therapy, which in fact is not going to touch upon the central problem, we're very, still very blind, by the way, how to treat neurosis and psychosis. Clearly, there's been advances beyond a Freudian understanding. But I think that a key insights that there are things that are being denied, repressed, sublimated, that there is an unconscious. Freud is going to divide up the self into the unconscious, and then in the conscious mind, even there, where, where you become conscious and unconscious is unclear, but the sense of the very mode of being guilty or self-accusatory, this is, of course, the, the work that I've done, but I'm just developing what Freud or Freudians through the line of Lacan and Zizek are going to develop. And that is that there is a kind of masochistic element in, in human experience. And there is a sense then that Freud, for the first time, is shining light on this. He's beginning to talk about this. Whether he's correct in what he's describing, whether he's completely wrong in the details of his description, I think that nonetheless he's talking about something that in the large portion of it, you know, obviously I think the surrounding cathexes and screen memories, reaction formations, maybe even the Oedipus complex as he works it out, or penis envy, so much of this has been set aside. But even taking that as being undone, that what Freud is showing is a kind of limitation on human perfectibility. Freud is going to describe this himself. and In, in fact, uh, Freud is going to question at the end of his life the sense in which he's he developed a system that's helpful at all with his analysis, terminable or interminable. That is, he discovers a kind of dark side uh, to the human condition, and he's not, I don't think, clear. He's questioning, I think, in that article the efficacy of the talking cure. What he is doing, and he is kind of the center of what many consider is a, a groundbreaking understanding. People thought, oh, well, here's a kind of Copernican revolution. And of course, Freud was not the sort of genius of a Copernicus. But nonetheless, there is a new form of awareness that's growing out of Freud's work. People are going to talk about experience and the deepest experience in a new sort of way. Uh, if you follow the, the career of a guy named Frederick Cruz, who, you know, he kind of goes through the, these stages that he's infatuated uh, early on with Freud. He's a, actually a literature professor, and he begins to, to use Freudian analysis in an, in an examination of literature at Berkeley. As his career develops, he sees, you know, his students reduplicating what he's doing. He's realizing Oh, that this can, uh, you can almost discover anything, that there's no clear understanding that, that you can get a hold of. There is a kind of atmosphere of the 60s of a kind of rebellious interpretation of things. And that uh, it fit, though Freud himself was quite politically conservative, it fit the political period in which people oh, were living under a delusion and that. Uh, Freudianism somehow is pointing us to this liberation from the delusion. People like Norman Brown are going to tweak that a little bit, uh, describe it in a different way. If you think of Lacan and Zizek, that really that's what they're going to do too. That Lacan is going to set up Freudian theory 
setting aside the biology and setting it purely within the realm of language. And then Zizek is going to develop that philosophically. And that then is, uh, makes it a prime tool to be used in a, in a kind of theological understanding that I'll come to. In other words, it, this all sounds bizarre until you iron out this understanding. Now, Cruz, Frederick Cruz, he then is also, he, he first is kind of infatuated, and then very quickly uh, he realizes that, oh, my students are proposing these contradictory readings of literature, and they're all very ingenious, and there's no way of deciding between them. And, of course, that's really the criticism that could have been leveled at Freud himself. There is this understanding that just seems more creative sometimes and circular and maybe just self-justifying. It's sort of like, you know, have you stopped beating your wife kind of understanding. There's no way of defeating the analysis. He's giving an understanding that, oh, well, you've got this unconscious awareness and your denial of it is, in fact, pointing to an affirmation of it. Maybe this is uh, illustrated in his development of the notion of seduction or his seduction theory. Some of the first people he began to work with were women were, that were diagnosed with hysteria, which, as I understand it, is no longer even a recognized condition. And his patients were reporting being sexually molested as children, usually by their fathers, and at an age under four when... Uh, 1896, he delivered a paper announcing that he had analyzed uh, 18 patients and had concluded that sexual abuse in infancy was the source of hysterical symptoms. And so this is what became known as his seduction theory. Even then, from the beginning, it was greeted with derision, a kind of fairy tale so he reported patients were not remembering actual molestation, but they were remembering their own sexual fantasies. This, of course, feeds into his notion of the, the Oedipus complex. And from infancy, all children have aggressive and erotic feelings about their parents, and they repress those feelings out of fear of punishment. And for boys, this is fear of castration. And, of course, for girls, it's, oh, they discover they're already castrated. These kind of forbidden wishes and desires are described as, you know, Freud has a whole theory of the energetics of the mind, and so they can't be expressed outwardly, and so we can't kill our parents, you know, we can't actually kill our father and marry our mother. Uh, we can't have sex with our parents, and so it's going to, reveal itself. This is his whole notion in the image of dreams, slips of the tongue, neurotic symptoms. What Freud is doing in the clinic and his notion of free association is that in free association then people would un uncover, patients would uncover what they had repressed in expressing it, the idea that they would gain some relief. And so this is psychoanalysis, is the uncovering of the repression. There's basically two problems with the, the narrative as we have it, and that is that the idea that Freud abandoned his seduction theory, actually, that is going to come quite late. Of course, the way that I'm telling this is the standard way of describing the unfolding of this, that he first proposes it and then has this counter-proposal and this is the way that it often is told. In fact, this history and this uh, received understanding of the way that it unfolds has, by the revisionists or the critics, it's all, I think, been disproven. And that is that the, the entire narrative, it gets things out of sequence. The chronology is a kind of reconstruction. And that Freud, in fact, did not abandon uh, the seduction theory for many years until after 1897. And he really did not insist on the centrality of the Oedipus complex until 1908. We have this reconstruction. That, that's the minor problem here. The big claim is that there really were no patients uh, that ever reported sexual abuse as children. Those 18 cases did not exist at all, and no patients subsequently reported having 
Oedipal wishes. What do you do with that? You know, Freud uh, made up the data, he badgered patients, or patients falsely reported. Cruz goes from a kind of a fanatical Freudian. Some would say that, in fact, he's gone to extremes the other way. Uh, I think that clearly the questioning of the efficacy of, of Freud, Cruz would say that he never had a single patient who claimed to have been cured or to have been helped. Did Freud make it up? Did it even have a placebo effect? We know that people like to talk about the problems. You'd think that uh, just talking would, you know, and someone will listen to your problems, that that would be of help. Certainly we need to take into account the criticisms of Freud, and I can fully embrace those criticisms. I don't know that we need to go as far as some, like Cruz has gone in vilifying Freud and some questioning, you know, his sexual relationships with his sister-in-law. I, I don't know that. I don't know why, if that matters, other than that, yeah, there's a questioning of the character of Freud. People who have a higher view of Freud, Adam Phillips' view that Freud, in fact, was a kind of intrepid researcher in the beginning, and then as he comes up with his theories, you know, that he's kind of a victim of his own success in the beginning where Freud is really just working with the mysteries and trying to in some, in some way develop that. And then he develops his theories and continues to imagine that uh, he, he wants to confirm those in some way. His own success is, is kind of his downfall. He, he wants to be an expert, you know, of the unconscious. Phillips would say, and this is where I'm going to do a different sort of account of Freud. And that is that there is in psychoanalysis the understanding of communication and that what human beings are is to be found in their use of language and in their sociability. The diagnosis, in other words, the general diagnosis, just that, that the way that people talk and the way that they associate with other, one another in language, that they're social creatures. This is all very Christian, of course, this is the the Freudian understanding is that Freud is actually comes out of a Hebraic understanding. And so he, he is developing an understanding whether there are profound errors in it or not, that in some way he's mining the unconscious and is a kind of artist uh, of the unconscious. And he's going to try to develop new ways to talk about the self. And he's, he's done that for us. There's a sense in which we were never going to escape, I think, the Freudian notions of the way in which we might block our own understanding, that we might, in fact, deceive ourselves, that we clearly there is a masochistic element to ourselves, or that we learn to, to listen to other people and ourselves. We come, become better listeners, perhaps, to what, to what people are saying. I think all of that in a, in a broad sense is part of, of what we get in Freud, but let me say in a more specific way than uh, what can be developed from Freudian theory. First of all, if we set Freud back in the setting of the, the, the 19th century, the early 20th century, in which the Enlightenment understanding that everyone having great faith in rational agency, and that is the key element of much modern philosophy, it's really with Freud, then, that there is an undermining and a, and a new a rise of a new modern or maybe postmodern philosophical thought. That clearly this is Jacques Lacan and Derrida and Zizek, Ricoeur. You could go through, then, the postmodernists. That there is going to be a questioning of thought. There's going to be a questioning of rationality that many would trace back to Freud. Lacan would say that he's really just always adhering to, to Freud, that he says one never goes beyond Freud, one uses him. Lacan is giving us a picture of Freudian theory, setting it in a, in a linguistic setting, as I've said. So in the broadest sense, let's take what Freud is doing, and I think that he can be a kind of guide that for, you know, he's talking about neurosis, if we think in terms of the failure of human beings, I think that everybody would agree things are not right, there's something wrong, and that part of the what we're doing in theology or what needs to be done and what we have in Revelation is that there's an exposure in, of, of the human condition and its inherently destructive practices. 
that is theology, that is psychoanalysis. What theology, what therapy requires is that we in some way overcome the obstacles that have been put in place by the sinner, by the neurotic in the case of psychoanalysis. And these obstacles then come to light in part through our confession that uh, we look at ourselves in a new way through talk and that the failed condition of human personality it's intertwined with structures of deception and deception by definition that if you can deceive yourself there has to be some kind of repression you know what do you call it uh, sublimation there are drives that we do things that in fact are self-destructive that are oriented to death and to a kind of final destruction and so in the large picture there is the sense that psychoanalysis as Freud is setting it out that there's a, a system or logic prior to that we can't take full cognizance of the system that there is a system of both the conscious self and the unconscious and that there are structures dependent upon maybe even our self-deception at some level is unconscious maybe not completely in the sense that Freud described that there you know he's still appealing and I think scripture is appealing to human agency can we talk about it you know Freud in the the part that nearly everybody's going to reject I'm going to reject what the Freud's talk of this in the same way that I would reject a cosmic understanding or a world understanding that is going to be rejected in the New Testament. In other words, two worlds are posed against one another, that there's a cosmic law or a law of sin and death, that Freud is, uh, he's not imagining a two-cosmos system. But I think that we can begin to navigate around the law of sin and death, partly utilizing the tools that Freud has given us. That is, the cure is to overcome this law of sin and death and be freed from inherent punishments by disclosing the nature of this kind of self-destructive lie. I think that's just a reading of the New Testament, of the Bible, that the punishments that actually, you know, you go back to Romans and chapter 7, chapter 8, when Paul is describing this kind of agonistic struggle and a kind of self-punishing struggle, that we're subject to a self-destructive lie. This is the Lacanian, Zizakian beginning point of the interpretation uh, of Freud, that Freud's concern was to translate the human predicament out of its religious idiom. Uh, he's going to talk about a scientific language, you know, that he's appealing to in his day. And of course, it's precisely there that he's most questionable, that he really wants to be a scientist and is not. But I think that, that what's happening in part in the New Testament is over and against religion in the same way that Freud is over and against religion. That religion is part of the threat of the, the self-harm. It is a kind of feeding in to the antagonisms. You know, this is the notion of René Girard, who is also going to take up in part a Freudian understanding. And so Freud already, he conceived of psychoanalysis as a secular form of theology to the extent that both play a role in aligning us with the social space of which we're a part, that we're going to read that in a different way. Well, that's precisely what the New Testament is doing and the theology is doing. We're going to realize that there is a world that is destructive and there is an escape from that world. That's a picture of sin and salvation. Harold Bloom is going to make the case that the structure of psychoanalysis, you know, in its emphasis on the Oedipus complex, it really only makes sense in a Hebraic universe where authority always resides in figures of the individual's past and only rarely survives in the individual proper. And so in Bloom's depiction, Freud posits a rabbinical-like psychic cosmos in which there is a sense in which everything, because everything already is in the past and, and nothing that matters can be utterly new. Eric Santner describes the forces of life acting on the individual, that they were kind of overwhelmed. He says there's an excess, there's a too muchness. 
And he uh, describes this recognition as arising from uh, Freud's Jewish heritage, that in, in spite of his own secularism, there's always the sense in which the individual is structured around some sort of internal excess or tension. Santner relates it to the tension of being the people that are elect. It elaborates this form of ethical orientation. And of course, in Freudianism, the notion of guilt and even an unconscious guilt or a moral masochism, that human life always includes more reality than it can contain. And this too much bears a kind of spiritual or a moral weight, a moral calling, a pressure toward self-transformation that is Judaism, that really is Christianity, that is, that it's a, uh, the, the journey toward goodness, toward perfection, that's inherent in the Judeo-Christian understanding. And so this theological tenor of Freudian theory really comes to the forefront. And what Freud is doing is trying to translate it out of a religious idiom. And he's going to come up with explanations of you know, the energetics attempting to locate the elemental biological forces of life and death. Uh, obviously, there is a sense in which he's uh, mistaken in trying to translate the theological language into the biological or the scientific. But the idea that people might be oriented to death or that they might be self-destructive or that they might be destructive to other people there's no question that that's true. You know, the idea that we need to examine that. Well, who, who, would, who would question that? And so Freud is giving us a, a, a look into which he came to see death as this negative force that is constraining and blocking, not just, you know, at the end of life, but in some way it's taken up into ourselves as a kind of overwhelming presence. Well, that's, that's very biblical. Of course, it's not biblical when he describes it as just an inherent force of nature in which he tries to describe it as cosmic. But there is the sense that even in that mistake he's tapping into or looking at the way that the Bible pictures the world as being controlled by a satanic or demonic or cosmic forces. You know, this is recently in, in doing a, an apocalyptic kind of theology. This is what's noticed and what's called upon in a demonology in the New Testament is that that is linked then to a cosmology. And even a recent apocalyptic theologians that are not necessarily wanting to develop this or attribute it to the satanic or the demonic Nonetheless, the cosmological element of it is something that they want to preserve. Now, how that's connected, you know, is a bit of a mystery. And so that Freud would make a mistake there. Well, that is the, the depiction, then, that we have, in a sense, in the New Testament. His description is one in which there's a fullness of life that is interrupted by our own setting obstacles in the way that cuts us off from this fullness of life and the stuff of which the obstacles are made that he's going to talk about as in terms of language, linguistic obstacles, the symbolism in religion, in magical power in religion, in the essay, The Mystic Writing Pad. It's the power of words to simultaneously conceal and reveal and the therapist's ability can see through, you know, that he could possibly intervene and heal. Isn't that what theology is wanting to do, is to say that in some way that we're in the danger of emptying out words, and those empty words then come to in some way dominate our lives, and this is the structure of the problem and intervention into this deception, and its exposure is the beginning point of healing. And so, as Ricoeur, Paul Ricoeur will put it, that there is this semantics of desire that is developed in Freud. That is, that desire has a meaning that needs to be translated into more concrete realm, maybe not the material realm, maybe not biology, 
but maybe into the symbolic realm. You know, we need to be able to see that in a different way. And this is the deep reason for the analogies between, you know, dreams and jokes and works of art and religion and illusion. All these psychical productions belong to the area of meaning, and they come under a unified question, according to Ricoeur. How do desires achieve speech? How do desires make speech fail? And why do they themselves fail to speak? That is, human desire seems duplicitous. It seems to be a driving force. It seems to be something we can't get a handle on. Given this understanding, death is not merely the end of life, but it is a force that's taken up in our experience in an orientation that ultimately would silence the subject. And of course, the idea of a living death, that in some way the subject is silenced before his time, that death, that mute energy, that uh, as Freud depicts it, would you know, silence the clamor for life. That even through our pleasures, there is a link in the nirvana principle, even in the pleasure principle. You know, that beyond the pleasure principle, there is a, uh, the idea that the subject is in some way pursuing an object that they themselves are deceived about. And the end product of this deception is a silencing of life in and through the acceptance of death as a form of life. And this discovery compels us to speak of, uh, Freud will refer to it as an unconscious sense of guilt. People punish themselves. And why are they doing this? Why are people masochistic? It's kind of uh, bewildering. That's the problem that he's faced with, is in so many neuroses and the unconscious sense of guilt, it's really putting on display a kind of economy that we may not be aware of, that we're subject to. And so this is, you know, what he's really getting at him, what he comes to in this most, what many would consider the most repellent part of Freud from beyond the pleasure principle. It's in this period that he proposes the dualistic theory of the instincts, that he became dissatisfied with eros or the erotic or the sexual as the explanation of everything. And of course, this is the Freud that most people are familiar with. And I think really it's the, the Freud that gets repudiated, that he begins to talk about you know, too much focus on that everything in some way is going to be explained through sexual desire. And he himself then is unhappy with this mono-instinctual theory that he, he was working under. This is why he proposes this tension. That he's going to say it's not simply a sexual tension, but that it is a tension between life and death. Who, who could deny that, that in some way that's the struggle that we're all involved in? And so what he discovers in masochism and the compulsion to repeat in the neuroses, the people repeat these traumatic images that he couldn't explain in terms of the pleasure principle is what he calls equilibrium or constancy principle, and he can't explain it. And it points to a deep-seated conflict that went beyond the explanatory power of, of the pleasure principle. And so there, it's almost like his patients are bent toward unpleasure, that they're, of course, that's the depiction in Romans, that the we're sort of self-punishment, the agonistic struggle that we involve ourselves in. The self-destruction is a pursuit then of a, a, an attempt at getting a handle, at, at coming to some sort of equilibrium. And so the compulsion to repeat amounted to, uh, in Freud's picture, an exponential buildup of energy. Where does masochism come from? Uh, it is not explained merely through the pursuit of pleasure, but the pursuit of pleasure and pain are mixed in to a, not a singular instinct, which would not explain it. He actually arrives at this at one of the most examined days of babysitting, I suppose, on record. And that is he's babysitting his grandson. And he's thinking then about the idea of the compulsive, repetitive manner that 
what he's encountering in his his patients that stretches his understanding of arrows. So he's watching his grandson, and he sees this pattern of behavior that is actually going to be the turn in his understanding in uh, psychoanalysis, and it will then institute in uh, beyond the pleasure principle uh, his positing of the death instinct, and then the the new notion of a dual instinct, eros and thanatos, or the life instinct and the death instinct, and then uh, that he's going to posit then a, a different agency within the ego, that is, that the self is split against the self, the ego over and against the superego. And so the three parts, or the tripartite understanding of the self, is uh, posited in watching this, what Freud calls the child's great cultural achievement. And that is that the boy would cry when his mother would leave. She couldn't hardly stand to see her go. But on this day, he suddenly he begins to play a game, and Freud describes it as the compensation for letting his mother go, in that he tied a he had a spool that was tied to a string, and he began to throw it up into his crib, and pull it back, and then the child I think it's for the f- first time he begins to to speak, uh, he makes a sound that or not it's not completely articulate, but he's saying, you know, it's, he, he pulls it, and he says, ah, bah, it's here, and then he throws it away, and then he says, uh, it's gone, and so it's an object that he has control over, and he repeats this game over and over, and Freud assumes that the child then is controlling, it's a kind of displacement, that entry into language, entry into this game, is kind of an alternative is in place of the child's mother, in fact. In a footnote, and this is what Lacan is going to, to note, the child at the same time had discovered how to make himself appear and disappear in a mirror. And so, uh, quoting Freud, throwing away the object so that it was gone might satisfy an impulse of the child's which was suppressed in his actual life to revenge himself on his mother for going away from him. And then later he observed the boy express such revenge. He threw his toys uh, under his bed, exclaiming, Go to the front! And his father was at the front lines in World War I. Freud, and perhaps the boy, connects being gone with death. And he makes this clear in a footnote, explaining the early death of the boy's mother. Freud says, now that she was really gone, oh, you know, the sound that he makes, the little boy showed no signs of grief. He'd already gotten over her leaving. He had sent her away many times and so had prepared for her death and had even participated in it, in a sense. And so death is the ultimate unpleasure in that it overwhelms and the repetition and play are then an attempt to master it, to in some way come up with a enduring object. And this final fort, you know, the final gone, which the game obscured and compensated for, Freud speculates, is a compensation for death. He says the, the child's game or entry into language occurs as compensation for the absence of the mother. And the spool can only symbolize absence and presence as they are both played out over a final or real absence. That is, that the game itself, the game of language, in some way is compensation. And the binary of presence and absence allows for the two opposing positions in turn to, uh, in some way, silence the absence of the mother. And that keeps the game running. Now, whether this is true or not true, or the degree that it's true, the point that I think he's making is that language, in fact, can become a kind of entity unto itself. Philosophically, I think that's true. That's what's often taking place in philosophy. What he's saying is that psychologically, this can also be true. Certainly, theologically, the idea of the knowledge of good and evil, 
Of course, in the Bible, the idea is not that the origins of language are necessarily in this kind of alternative to God, but that's certainly the way the game of knowledge of good and evil is played out, that this use of language is over and against. It's a compensation for the loss of God. Now, uh, you know, is that the, the way that we all enter into language? I don't know, but it's a, it's a kind of neat portrayal of a very similar circumstance that Lacan will connect the death drive to the binary of language. That is, that language, the symbolic order, becomes an order of compensation for death. He says the death instinct is only the mask of the symbolic order. The symbolic order is simultaneously non-being and insisting to be. And that's what Freud has in mind, you know, when he talks about the death instinct as, as being what is most fundamental. Lacan calls it a symbolic order in travail, in the process of becoming, insisting on being realized. Just think of the, the, the sense that there is a grasping, uh, uh, an attempt to achieve a kind of final object. And language, then, is a dynamic order, which means that it does not exist like an object. That is, that an object endures through time. People endure through time. But language does not endure, but it arises, it passes away, it has no enduring being. And one who is coming to his identity in and through language is subject to the fate of language. There is a dynamic of language in the chain of signifiers, but meaning is not found in any singular signifier or any moment in time. And so the play of the signifiers is also the signifying chain that we imagine that creates the, the kind of, a kind of possibility for the subject. They're put into pursuit of an identity, the pursuit of an object. Uh, Freud, at this point, is going to identify as the ego. The death instinct is the mask of the symbolic order, that, of its dissonance, of its, un, you know, its incapacity to achieve its object. And so the compulsion to repeat of the death drive is a product of the attempt to establish the self like an object, to repeat the self in and through language. It's an inherently impossible thing. Now, uh, Freud grounded the compulsion to repeat in a biological need to return and to, uh, you know, to, the, to the material realm. And I think that, again, he's trying to be scientific in that, uh, Lacan explains the compulsion is arising from dissonance between the register of what he calls the symbolic order or language and the order that he calls the imaginary or, or of seeing or uh, attempting to arrive at the ego. But what Freud is positing for us is that tension that is going to be developed by Lacan. Now, the last thing in regard to Freud is really his, the, the role that he sees, that he plays out in the ego and the id between what he calls the superego, and thinking here of his Hebraic background, that the superego is the kind of the punishing force of, he'll link it to the force of religion or morality. And you have to understand it in light of the, you know, the, he, he considers religion an illusion, but of course, on this basis, on this understanding that think of the punishing sense of trying to attain life in the law. That is a depiction of the Jewish understanding by Paul. That is the mistaken understanding. Now, it's wrong to call that Jewish, but the idea that a, a misorientation to the law. And it's not, Paul's not just saying this is a singular problem or this is one people's problem. This attempt to establish the cell through the law, that is the human predicament. And just think about it being stretched down here, that the attempt to establish life through language, that you think of the temptation in the garden, that you won't die, you'll be like gods, you know, knowing good and evil. That is, through your use of language, you escape death, you become godlike. That's not simply one people's problem. That is the human problem. And so the, the judgment that the superego passes on the ego 
It's a kind of religious judgment, that is, this dynamic of good and evil. The religious believer, you know, is made to feel his worthlessness before the law, and he wants to obtain the law. He wants to, in some way, put himself in the law to be part of that enduring medium. This is precisely the way that Freud is describing the relationship between the superego and the ego. The superego is the thing, you know, the origin of man's high ideals, Freud says, such as the immortal soul, religion. That is, here is immortality. And Freud's point is that this is a kind of lure, that it comes from the lowest depths in the minds of each of us. That is, there's a tripartite play, that is, the the superego is the ideal. We want to obtain this. We want to live up to it. We want to, in some way, insert ourselves into this enduring medium of law, of language, of religion, of morality. An enduring place. Where does that impetus, what is the impetus of that? Well, he's going to locate that in the id, that that's the lowest part of ourself. And so the split that has occurred in the ego with the death drive, it's not reality. It's not the product of reality. Freud says it's the refusal of reality. He's identifying this problem with the Oedipus complex, you know, wherein the originally posits the notion of a primal horde, and the original sons then have to obtain the position of the father to gain women, but to gain life. But the child is presented with the ambiguity of both loving the father, the father's the model, you know, think God here, think the law, whatever, and you want to emulate him, but of course the father is also the thing that's denying one's life itself, That so you want to displace him. Whether the Oedipus, the particular Oedipus picture that Rene Girard's going to critique this, I don't know uh, whether it's a perfect illustration, but it's certainly biblical in the fall of man to describe the notion that man would be the father, that he would be his own father, which is kind, you know, he would be God to himself. That is idolatry. And so in Freud's picture, the choice results in a kind of simultaneous refusal and acceptance of both sides of the choice. Uh, that is, Freud says the child will be the father, but as the father, he will take revenge on the child. The ego you know, passes through the Oedipus complex, it then contains the same ambivalence. that He's uh, spelling out the primal horde in the totem and taboo, and then he comes to apply that then to the individual. That in some way the superego is the reenacted model of the father, which is taken up by the child. And he takes the taboo or the forbidding presence of the father into himself. Again, if you just take this as illustrative, I think it's helpful as an illustration. I, I don't know. First of all, Freud's history, I doubt it. And even whether it's, a, in the case of the individual, a metaphor. But I think we can understand that the metaphor may be pointing to a truth, that the child faced with the forced choice of being like the father and receiving the prohibition that he cannot be, he cannot be the father. And so he... Re resolves the original desire by taking the prohibition of the father into himself and thus becomes the father through the prohibition. That is, he becomes his own. He sees the father primarily in terms of the law, takes the law into himself, and in some way would put himself in the place of the father. And so the child's parents, you know, especially his father, were perceived as the obstacle to a realization of his Oedipal wishes to be the father. So his infantile ego in Freud's picture fortifies itself by carrying out the repression, by erecting the same obstacle within himself. The superego retains the character of the father, while the more powerful experience of the Oedipus complex was, the more rapidly one comes under the power of this repression, under the influence of authority, religious thinking, schooling, reading. That is, the stricter will be the domination of the superego over the ego in the form of the, the conscience, or perhaps Freud says even in an unconscious sense of guilt. So here you have the dynamic of how, what, what is guilt, or what is 
maybe guilt's not uh, a strong enough word. What is shame? You know, here it is, I think, this idea of we would establish ourselves through being, putting on a morality, putting on an image, putting on whatever, but in some way that thing's going to fall apart. It's going to come undone. And the dominant power of the superego that tends to persist, you know, throughout our adulthood can be assigned to the weakness of the child before the father or the original weakness of the ego before the superego. And then the mature ego-superego relationship tends to memorialize that original relationship in a permanent psychic conflict. Think here, Romans 7, I do what I don't want to do and what I want to do, I don't do. In which the ego, the I, is alienated from what I, I, you know, there's two I's here, want to do, and it is antagonistic towards itself. I think this is an illustration of it. It's actually a breaking down of it. It's an understanding of it, of the, the psychic mechanism. The theological reality that's being portrayed, if the New Testament is correct, that, oh, maybe people are in conflict with themselves, and maybe they're in conflict with themselves because it is a conflict that relates to the law. I think that the, the Freudian picture, then, uh, is a good illustration of this, at a, at a minimum. And so I think we can use Freud, and I will, I will build upon this in a, in a subsequent podcast. But here I've laid out the, the general parameters in which I've acknowledged, then, the problem is with psychoanalysis, with Freudian psychoanalysis. I'm not a believer in the Freudian diagnosis, for the most part. But in the large frame, I think he's given us a picture that has a, a theological essence to it. it. It's a new language. We can begin to, to think of it in a different way, but I think it, it can be tied in, and that's what uh, both Lacan and Zizek will begin to do. They're going to tie in this Freudian language to Paul and say, oh, it looks like he's just reduplicating a biblical image. And I think that's true. Now, I think there, there are obviously continued problems with details of the Freudian diagnosis, and certainly with the notion that there's any therapeutic or any cure. But I think setting the problem in the uh, understanding of a disease and a cure to the disease, it fits the biblical notion of a therapeutic or a therapy, which is actually a, a good biblical word. So I will stop there uh, for now, but I think that here is the dark side of Freud, but I think also the continued value that people are going to continue to be, in some way they're going to appeal to a Freudian framework, uh, even if they don't know it, even, uh, you know, I think that, that in many ways modern psychoanalysis is still working within the large parameter that Freud laid out. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.